Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by sprinting legend Michael Johnson, a man who has broken world records and taken home four Olympic and nine world championship gold medals. He now runs Michael Johnson Performance, which uses scientific data to help train and bring out the potential in future athletes. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Michael. Thanks, Joe. Happy to join you. So you are perhaps best known for your amazing performance in the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. You achieved a feat that had never been done before, uh, running the 200 meter and the 400 meter and winning both. They were the, you were the first male to do that. Um, and even setting a world record to boot. Uh, what, what got you thinking first that you should, you could and should tackle such a complex and difficult combination? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was really born out of, uh, my unique talent um, at that point in 1996 and my career started my professional career started in 1990 and at that time you know the sort of prevailing sentiment was that if you're a 400 meter sprinter you're just a 400 meter sprinter and the 200 meters was sort of reserved for the 100 meter sprinters would double into the 200 meters so um, but I was unique in, in, in that, that I, I had talent uh, to be world class and, and be uh, possibly best in the world at the 200 meters and 400 meters, um, which was not a, 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 a common combination. It was very unique. And so, you know, throughout all of the different championships, uh, 1991 World Championships, I won the 200 meters, 1992 Olympics, I competed in the 200 meters, 1993 World Championships, I competed and won the 400 meters. And so, you know, at every one of those championships, including different U.S. championships, you know, I had to sit in the stands and watch one of the races uh, be won uh, by someone else other than me, even though I was the best in that event. So if I competed in the <laughs> 200 meters, I was watching the 400 meters and watching someone else win that event, even though I was ranked number one in the world and the best. And that was all because the schedule just didn't allow for an athlete to double in both of those events because it was so uncommon. So <clears throat> I certainly didn't like, um, you know, having to sit there and watch someone else win a race that I knew that I was the best in. So I, and I wanted to run both. And so I started to make the argument that I could successfully win both of the, uh, the races if the schedule allowed me to do so. And, um, we finally were able to convince the organizers of the 1995 world championships, um, to, to, to create a schedule that would allow me to run both events and, 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 you know, for your listeners, you know, just the reason why it's so difficult is because there are elimination rounds. There's a preliminary round and then you advance to a quarterfinal and then to a semifinal and ultimately to a final. So for that's four races for any one of those events and eight races, of course, if you're doubling back in, into another event. And you've experienced something that many people haven't, which is standing on a gold medal stand, having your national anthem play. Um, I know it's hard to put into words, but what does that moment feel like? Yeah, it's it's the reason it's so hard to to put into words, Joe, is because it, um, it it's such a unique experience and such a special experience, and there's nothing else that compares to it. Because of all of that, it is incredibly special. You know that you know you are the absolute best in the world. It is the best in the world at their best on the day, and so when you get the opportunity to stand there 
you know, as the best and not only representing yourself, but representing your country. It, it is truly special. Terrific. So um, your career was unbelievable. World records, gold medals, world championships. Uh, and this podcast, we often talk about the failures that led up to those successes. So you weren't undefeated in your career. And I'm wondering how, what setbacks did you have that were actually things that helped you pave the way for the success that you enjoyed? You had to talk about the losses, huh? We, we have to talk about the losses. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much more interesting conversation. It is. You're right. It is. It is. No, and, and, no, and, and, and I hate losing, so I remember each one of them um, vividly. <laughs> Luckily, it's um, a short list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so um, you know, before even, you know, getting into the losses of, of my professional career, you know, I had some serious setbacks initially, you know, as a collegiate athlete, uh, my four years at, at Baylor University, I showed tremendous potential. I started immediately when I arrived at Baylor, um, to show potential to be one of the best in the world. Um, but realizing that potential was very difficult. I had, um, every year of my four years at Baylor, or at least all the first three years, I was set back with injuries every single year and to a point where it was, it was chronic and uh, to a point where, um, you know, it was starting to look like I may, you know, not actually ever reach uh, that potential. And um, I remember the day that uh, before the start of my, my senior year, my final year, and I knew that I've got to deliver on this potential this year and, and I can't have any injuries. Otherwise, you know, there will be no professional career for me. So I, I called my coach and asked him if I could come to his office and meet with him. And he knew that the kind of person I was is that I'm the kind of person that, you know, that I am. You have to, I have to kind of come to my own conclusions, or at least that's how I was then, as opposed to someone telling me. And basically, I came to the conclusion when he said, and why don't you think about some of the things you can do? He knew that I wasn't stretching and I was just mm -hmm. kind of fiddling around when we were stretching before practice. And he knew that when, you know, the three days a week, you know, we had our strength training sessions after training that I was kind of just hanging in there going through the motions. He knew that he had mentioned that to me before and um, that he felt like, you know, I've mentioned it to him before. If he really wants this, he'll do it. And he knew enough about me as an athlete to know that I need to help him come to his own conclusion on this. And that's exactly what happened. And I committed myself to it. And I committed myself to both of those elements of my training uh, to be just as committed to those as I was to the running. And the result was I finished that year um, in the track and field world with the equivalent of going right out of college, going right into the NFL and being the world champion, you know, Super Bowl champion and, and, and MVP of the season. First man in history to be ranked number one in the world in 200 meters and 400 meters. I love your emphasis here on the psychological parts of this. Uh, I often tell my teenage boys, being right isn't enough. And this art of telling stories and communicating and getting people to discover for themselves really is a, a powerful story in terms of how you say that. Um, tell us a little bit about how that works at your at your current organization and how you coach and how you get through to athletes in a way that that pays respect to your coach. Yeah, it's 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 understanding the individuality of, of each athlete. Um, and my coach understood that in me, not only from a psychological uh, perspective, like we just we just talked about in the example I just gave, but also it's well known and well documented that my running style is is very different 
um, and was very different than, than all of the sprinters that came before me. And, mm-hmm. um, when I was being recruited, uh, by, you know, lots of coaches around the, the country to, to universities, um, every single one of them told me I'd have to run my, change my running style to reach my full potential. And, and Clyde Hart at Baylor was the only coach who didn't, he never mentioned my running style. And that wasn't why I chose Baylor and that wasn't why I chose him. Uh, I didn't even think about it. Um, but later, of course, it continued to be a source of, 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 uh, of, of to- a topic of discussion when I was starting to run really fast and, and people started to ask him, well, why haven't you changed his running style? And, um, and he said, you know, well, for one thing, you know, you know, everyone assumes that Michael is the one that needs to be changed, but Michael's the one that's in front. And, uh, <laughs> that was the simple, right. you know, unscientific, uh, sort of philosophy he took, but also more importantly, you know, he and I both, you know, once I started my professional career and there was even more talk about this, he and I both felt like we're the kind of people that, you know, we're not going to just make an assumption that we're right. We decided to have a scientific study conducted. We did that in conjunction with the sports scientists at the U.S. Olympic Committee. And, and the ultimate result was that my running style was much more efficient than anyone else that had ever come before me and run the 200 meters or 400 meters. And so it became, you know, we discovered that that is in fact actually the secret weapon. And it is that running style that contributed greatly to my ability to make the history that I did and be the unique uh, sprinter that, that, that we all know now that, that, that I was. And so, uh, we take that same philosophy at Michael Johnson Performance, um, training our coaches and, and in our coach education programs where we train coaches outside of our organization, uh, training them to to really, you know, uh, meet an athlete where they are and, and understand the uniqueness of each athlete, how that athlete, uh, what their physical makeup is, what their talents may be, um, as well as, you know, um, how they learn and um, and how they're in, you know, motivated and and create uh, a program in your coaching approach uh, with that athlete around who they are. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the efficiency of your running. I have heard exactly what you said, that it was recognized later as being efficient. I had never heard the story that you just told about the study that was done. I wonder if you could explore a little bit how that study was done, who did it, uh, were you the uh, kind of a guinea pig with lab rat uh, on a treadmill or, or were they looking at video? Like, explain a little bit about how that study was done and what they concluded. Yeah, for this particular study, it was um, we, we uh, I, even though I'm 53 years old, it wasn't so long ago that we were we were actually even then able to still take video footage and um, measure stride length and force and and um, stride rate and all of those sorts of things um so so i didn't have to be uh, so much of a lab rat later on i did do that sort of thing um where we i was able to you know with get put sensors on and you know measure force into the ground and and stride rate and stride length a lot more uh, accurately but what we were able to find so the usoc u.s olympic committee has always had a, a very good sports science um uh, a unit uh, that supports athletes and does research to sort of, you know, support coaches um, with data and, and information uh, from uh, data collected on, on previous athletes and, and some of the most successful athletes. And in fact, they had created, the U.S. Olympic Committee had created a, a model for the sort of perfect um, 200, 400 meter sprinter. And, um, 
um, and and you could do some you know sort of layovers and with uh, original footage and hmm. um, over the model and um, and I, I I beat the model um, and so I became the model. <laughs> so how has the analytics changed over time? So now you've got the your own center and you are uh, addressing individual athletes to help them bring out their own personal best. And you mentioned a little bit about that, uh, sensors and different things. And um, what's different today uh, than when you were in in the um, in your twenties, coming up into the scene? Yeah, I, I think as you as you could imagine, with all of the technology that has um, that has evolved over the last thirty years or so, um, you know, throughout our lives, and certainly in the last ten years, um, um, you know. There are all sorts of different technologies out there now that um, that we we can use, athletes can utilize, and coaches can use. Um, but primarily, what it all comes down to, the biggest benefit that I see is that it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for coaches. So coaches are now able to validate what they think they know. Um, uh, they're able to uh, have a much better understanding of and predict what the effect might be on coaching decisions, changes that they may make in a training program, even on a daily basis. Um, and we're able to get real-time uh, information on uh, actually the effect that a training program is having on an athlete while they're training. Um, and, and our coaches at Michael Johnson Performance are able to do this not only when the athletes are in our headquarters, in our sports science lab, or in our training um, headquarters in Dallas, but we have athletes and, and teams around the globe that we work with remotely. And we're able to, our coaches are able to see um, exactly what is happening with that athlete while they're training on the other side of the world in real time. And mm-hmm. and they're able to make much more informed and, 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 and therefore much more effective coaching decisions as a result of that. And with respect to these coaching decisions, uh, we often hear for instance, if you had a golfing coach, they might change your stance, your grip, your approach, your mechanics. Um, you might also change diet. You might also change uh, workout schedule. Are all of these things that are taken into consideration? Or what? What is the kind of coaching decision that might be made as a result of seeing this data? Yeah. So, you know, just backing up for a second. So, what we do is, you know, we take athletes through any sport, whether it's from any sport, whether it's you know golfer or tennis athlete or, you know, your NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball athletes and sprinters, but also athletes as, as you know, sort of varied as, well, bull riders. Um, hmm. You know, we've worked with, you know, professional bull riders with official training, you know, partner, the PBR for years. Uh, we work with Formula One teams working with their pit crews that are trying to, you know, lift a, you know, 40 pound tire and change it in, you know, four of them in less than two seconds, you know. So that's, you know, efficiency of movement you know, reducing the injury, uh, the, the, the injury risk and, and power and strength and quickness and all of those things together. We have to find solutions and we have to make decisions based on all of those things that are unique to the athlete. But also, um, you know, so we, we're developing athleticism, you know, for these athletes and not necessarily the skill of the sport. We're developing and improving speed, strength, power, quickness, endurance, we're making decisions on a daily basis. Our coaches are making decisions, you know, as to what sort of training program, first of all, um, is going to be most effective for that athlete 
based on their goals and based on how we've assessed them and evaluated them to understand and start to get at the, you know, where are the opportunities for improvement here and, and where are there are some weaknesses and where are the, you know, what are the injury risks over the next season that we can start to mitigate and shore up. So all of those things are what we're trying to get after. That's our remit, so to speak. And so all of those decisions are based, you know, the decisions are down to yeah, what is the actual training program that's going to be most effective and, and how do we know that and how do we measure the effectiveness of that training program? And then how do we optimize it on a day to day basis? If we've got three months to get a, an athlete, you know, stronger by whatever particular metric, you know, every day counts. And, um, and we have some programs where we're, for example, you know, when we're preparing prospective NFL players for the NFL combine that happens every uh, February, the athletes come to us after they finish their bowl games in January to begin first week or so of January. And after this season is over and we've got to have them ready not to play football at the NFL combine, but to run the 40 yard dash and lift the 225 pounds for number of reps and five ten five shuttle drill, which is an agility drill and uh, vertical jump for height. It's a competition for these guys and contracts are, you know, decisions are made, draft decisions are made based on that. So we have to get them ready and we have six weeks to do it. So every day counts. So the decisions that are being made, the, the, the most impactful ones are, yeah, how do we adjust this program today to make sure that it is optimal and we get ex as much as we can out of the training session today uh, based on how the athlete performed yesterday how they recovered, how they their body regenerated, and all of those sorts of things. It's fascinating. I'd like to talk a little bit about your own personal training. Um, so in addition to breaking world records, as if that wasn't impressive enough, you also have the record for the most times breaking 44 seconds in a 400 meter. You've done it 22 times, which is more than twice as much as any other person has ever done. And in some respects, this is really the model of consistency. And it's a tribute to your physical work ethic, but also a lot of the mental preparation that you put into this. And I'd like to explore that a little bit. Um, and I'd like to explore it through the lens of how you approached your races, how you approached your training. And in particular, there was a, a story that I found interesting about the, um, the 400 meter final in 1996 and the semifinal to final, you actually increased, you improved your time by almost a full second. 0.9 seconds. And that was decidedly better than Roger Black, who was second place, who only improved his time by 0.28. You've described your understanding of the situation. You described a term called redlining. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the psychology of training, the psychology of preparing those heats, and how you get yourself ready to execute in combination with all the prep that you've done physically. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Joe. And, and it's, um, you know, so there's training, obviously, uh, training your, you know, when you're training every day, you're training your body to be prepared to, to, to perform at its absolute best on the day. And in the case of an Olympics, the day may be multiple days because you've got a preliminary round, a quarter final round, a semifinal round, and then a final, uh, if you are fortunate enough to advance through all of those. Um, so obviously I'm at, as number one in the world. I'm anticipating I'm going to advance through all of those, but I want to be, you know, as ready as I possibly can on the day of the final. Um, so you're training your body to be able to, you know, uh, endure all of the, that you're going to, to put it through over those, uh, four days of, of races. 
you're also training um, around race strategy. What strategy am I going to need to execute to uh, produce the, the quickest time I can on that day? And and I know that that part is a little bit tricky for people because when you think about sprinters, you think, well, the gun goes off and everybody runs as fast as they can and you keep turning left and the first person to the finish line <laughs> wins. And and that's true, <laughs> but there's a lot more that that's the that's the spectator of a uh, uh, view of it. But, but what's happening in that race is is a lot more going on, you know, during that 43 seconds of a 400 meters, as an example. I mean, you are making decisions, you're assessing whether you are. You know, you have it, you develop a pretty good internal clock as a sprinter. So I can, you know, I, I can assess in, in, in within, you know, a couple of tenths of accuracy, you know, how fast I ran through that first 150 meters or the first 100 meters or however you're dividing up the, the race. So you're training yourself to be able to be more accurate in your execution and be um, more targeted in terms of hitting the times that you need to hit at those particular um, uh, splits um, uh, in the race. So on race day, um, you know, all of those things have to come together. You've mentioned there the history of the Olympics, and I've heard you mention before that one of your heroes in Olympic history was Tommy Smith. And Tommy Smith also broke the world record uh, in the 200 meter, the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And he was most um, famous. There's a very iconic image of him doing the, um, the Black Power salute during the national anthem. How did that affect you as a runner? How do you consider him as a, as a pioneer in the sport? And what did that do to affect anything related to your track career and ultimately your, your, your personal life? Yeah, Tommy is is uh, a friend and and certainly a hero of mine. And um, you can't even mention Tommy Smith without you know reference to the great um, podium um, Black Power salute by he, he and uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos um, in Mexico City. And um, you know, once I started to sort of go down that rabbit hole, so to speak, on Tommy and all that he meant to the sport. Um, obviously, I've, I've I, I got very interested in, you know, the Black Power Salute and what was behind that and what what made uh, Tommy and and uh, and John decide to do that. And um, uh, and it was it's just an incredible story of, of courage. You know, I thought many times, you know, would I do that? You know, would I have the courage to do what they did? Mm. And, and, and for those who don't know. You know, they were punished um, as Olympic athletes and, and um, um, for rule violations. And, and they certainly they faced a lot of backlash when they got back home. Uh, but uh, I think people have recognized over the, the subsequent, you know, 50 years, um, you know, that um, these were two very talented athletes who showed a lot of courage and took a lot of risk in, in doing what they did, standing up for, for social justice. Terrific. Um, I'd also like to ask you a little bit about another part of what you're doing outside of your professional world, which is the Michael Johnson Young Leader uh, Organization. And you are working to provide young people from all around the world uh, with the tools to overcome adversity in their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Why did you set that up? And what are you looking to achieve? Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of what we do at, at Young Leaders. So, um, sport has always been uh, central to my life and at Michael Johnson Performance, sport is, you know, we're all about sport and everyone that works, 
with us there. We all, our entire team, you know, understands the value of sport and, and what it can mean in, in people's lives and, and in communities. And I've been involved in sport for change for a very long time, um, using sport as a tool for social change. And as I've traveled around the world over the years, um, in supporting organizations that, um, that use, uh, sport as a tool to sort of get young people to the, to the, to the, to the starting line when some sort of situation in their lives, whether it be violence or poverty or war and conflict or, disease or whatever it is that's affecting a particular community, um, you know, um, you know, conspires to, to basically make it much more difficult for young people to sort of succeed in life. Um, I've worked with organizations that, that, that are specifically try to overcome that, um, and, and help young people get to the starting line, uh, using sport, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and as I've done that, I have seen, with some of these young people, how incredible they are. And they're just naturally gifted as leaders. And, and, and they stand out because you, you see them and I start to interact with them. And I think, you know, this person is just incredibly impressive and they've overcome so much to be so impressive. And, uh, as an individual and they are giving back to their community. They become a leader in their community and go on to be a great success story for themselves. But what they've decided to do instead is to stay right there in that community, even though they could leave and become the, 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 the ideal role model and to change that community. And uh, those people are very impressive. And so we support them with uh, financial support, to develop their own programs. We, we, they either go on a track of being basically a coach. Many of them are coaches. And so that is sort of music to the, to our, our, our company that, and our, our team. That's music to their ears. Um, we love coaches. We employ, employ a lot of coaches. We train coaches. Um, so we are training mostly coaches who go on to division one colleges and work in, you know, pro football teams and that sort of thing. But these young people were trained to change lives. And, and that's just incredibly rewarding for us. So they, you know, many of them become administrators in different programs um, uh, that, that change lives. And, and some of them start their own programs. But all of the programs and all of those people, you know, it, it's all involves sport as a tool for change. And uh, we're incredibly proud of the work that, that we've been able to do. It's truly inspirational. I also wanted to ask you about um, something that happened much later in your life that people may or may not know about you, and that is the fact that you had a stroke when you were 50 years old. Um, there are some fascinating stories about how long it took you to be able to walk again, and the first time you did your first 200 meters was actually around the UCLA uh, hospital, and it took you 10 minutes to finish what at one point had taken you 19 seconds. I wonder if you can take us through the process of getting back, the mental process, the hard work, and what that whole event taught you about yourself. Yeah, it was. Um, it's just it's just a crazy, crazy story. Um, yeah, I just turned fifty. Um, I was no, almost fifty-one, um, and um, I was actually so I had a stroke. Okay, and typically, you know. You know, you think, okay, people who are unhealthy, overweight, high blood pressure, smokers, poor diet, sedentary. And I was none of those things. 
I've, I've always maintained a healthy diet. My wife's a chef and a, and a, and a, and a health nut. So, um, she's changed my diet over the last 20 years to be significantly even more healthy than it was. Um, and, um, and I exercise daily. I was actually exercising when I had the stroke and I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary and I wasn't really pushing myself that day. Um, never been overweight, never been a smoker. Um, so, uh, I just finished a workout at my gym here at my house. And, um, when I finished, I walked outside of the gym. My wife was actually out in front, uh, playing with our dog and, and I was talking to her and then I turned around to walk back into the gym and I stumbled and, and I was having a real difficult time trying to regain coordination and get my left leg to function the way that it normally would. And so I sort of hobbled back over to a weight bench and I sat down and um, I, then I started noticing as I moved my left arm, it would sort of move slightly un, um, um, on its own, sort of involuntary. And um, it was really strange. So at that point, my wife and I just decided, let's go to the to the emergency room, got to the hospital and um, the initial sort of CT scan revealed that it looked like maybe I had had a stroke, but they weren't seeing any blockage or anything. So they weren't sure. And um, so the next step was an MRI. And um, when they did the MRI, it determined they were able to find that I had suffered a stroke deep in the right side of my brain. There was a blockage. It was there long enough to affect a lot of blood vessels there. And, um, and then it was ischemic. So it eventually moved on, but uh, not before it did a significant amount of damage. And, um, and, and, you know, you hear people after they've had surgery on an ankle or something say, oh, I had to learn how to walk again. That's not necessarily true. Um, because your brain still remembers all of the coordination of, you know, swinging your thigh and bending your knee and, you know, lifting your heel and dorsiflecting, dorsiflexion of your, your foot, you know, and you're twisting, you're turning your ankle and, pushing off and all of those things and the sequence, which we don't realize is very, very intricate. Um, your brain still remembers how to do those things. In my case, my brain no longer was able to do those things because the connection that had been doing that every single day, millions of times had been severed basically. So I truly had to learn how to walk again. My left leg was not doing anything close to what my right leg was doing. It was barely moving. And um, as I worked really hard on that and sort of put myself back into athlete mode and let him coach me, and I worked really hard and focused really hard on it, um, I noticed little tiny, tiny marginal micro improvements that most people probably wouldn't recognize. But that was familiar to me because of having, you know, trafficked in, you know, thousands of a second, mm. <laughs> you know, for years. And uh, so we walked and when we got back to the room, um, I looked back and I thought that was about 200 meters. And just being who I am, of course, I timed it. Um, <laughs> I just do. <laughs> <Not surprising. laughs> so, and, uh, and I looked up and I was like, that was 10 minutes. And, um, and I came into the room and, and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to make a full recovery and I'm going to make it faster than anybody else has ever done it before. And so... Um, Six weeks later, I was I was running. I was running poorly, but I was able to run. And um, I've spent a lot of time since then 
trying to help other people who are, are victim of stroke uh, to, to give them the confidence that they can get back to their livelihood. Once again, the power of goals and process. So how can our listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so um, Michael Johnson Performance, obviously, you know, that's I spend most of my time there. We um, we we sort of stay st- strictly in our lane with with athletes and helping athletes, world class athletes, youth athletes, you know, sort of weekend warriors as well, you know, sort of achieve their goals. And that's a huge passion. Uh, so we're at MichaelJohnsonPerformance.com. Um for years, I've been asked to sort of move, you know, and, and take what we do and move into the the fitness space for the sort of everyday Joe. And uh, I started a company earlier this year and we're building a, a virtual personal coach that will revolutionize the digital fitness of uh, the fitness industry. And we're still we're still early days there, but I, I look forward to being able to share what I've learned as an athlete and what I've been able to you know, build an organization that has supported uh, thousands of athletes around the world and helping them to achieve their goals. I, I look forward to being able to to um, to to help just the everyday sort of everyday athlete as well. And and we're we're getting there. Well, Michael, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Michael Johnson is a four-time Olympic gold medalist, a nine-time World Championship gold medalist, and a world record breaker. He's a sports commentator, an advocate for justice, and a track and field legend that continues to build the talents of the next generation through Michael Johnson performance and Michael Johnson Young Leaders. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Gazelle-like speed? Check. Laser-like focus? Got it. But beyond that, Michael Johnson reminds us that in order to be world-class, we'll require some familiar themes. Set goals. Assess yourself. Implement change. Measure the results. That sounds like data science. That sounds data brilliant.